scripture reading today is taken from uh, Psalm 40. Psalm 40. I'll be reading from the English uh, Standard Version. Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the murray bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than a hairs on my head. My heart fail, fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those who be put to shame and be disappointed altogether, who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor, who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. But for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. This is the word of our God. Thank you, Oli, for reading God's Word for us this morning, and thank you, everyone, for gathering wherever you are here in this nation or perhaps even around the world. We're delighted that you have joined us on this, the Lord's Day. As you probably know already, before we had ever heard of the term coronavirus, our staff had prepared for two years to have a theme of radical dependence. And before this whole thing began, we decided that we would put a comma in June and July for a four-week study of how radical dependence is exposed in the Psalms. And some of you may recall two weeks ago as Pastor Ollie reminded us that the Psalms are meant to instruct us in God, 
in life and also in our own nature. They were poetry written to music. In fact, many people have called the book of Psalms the hymn book of Israel. And last week, Eugene led us into Psalm 39 and reminded us that godly lament is a valid expression in the Christian experience. We do encounter grief. So in Psalm 38, David sang a song about a man who was under his father's discipline. And then in Psalm 39, David sang a song of a man who was practicing the discipline of silence in the middle of grief. And this morning, we come to Psalm 40, written by a man who had found his voice, who was waiting patiently for the divine intervention of the Lord his God. So as we come to his word this morning, let's bow our heads together and invite him to be our teacher. Father God, we thank you that you give us these moments to set aside the anxieties that fill our plate every day. Help us to humbly turn toward you in your word today. Fill us with divine instruction that we may depart from this moment full of courage that you are the God who sees us. You are the God who turns toward us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've got to be honest with you. In the almost 40 years of Christian ministry, I have not ceased to be amazed at the diverse ways that God turns men's hearts to him. In 1985, I was serving as a youth pastor in California. And uh, one day I was sitting in my office. My office was kind of unique. It, it was the only office in the church that only had access from the outside. Once you were in my office, you had to go back outside, walk around the building to get into the rest of the church. So it's almost as if youth ministry was kind of an afterthought. Let's punch a hole in the wall and we'll let youth come in this way. I was sitting in my office, there was a knock on the door, and in walked Robert Hewlett, skateboard underarmed. Now, I had seen Robert before, but I didn't really know him, because he had come to only one youth event, and I recall, I remembered him, because I was going down the long queue of young people who were waiting to get food, and I saw him, knew he was new, and so I went up to him and said, hey, what's your name? He said, Robert. I said, my name's Ian, I'm the youth pastor here, and right away, he raised his hands and said, whoa. I'm only here for the free pizza. So I left that evening. I went home. I told Sherry about the Robert I met who was only there for free pizza. And I said this. We'll never see him again. But then he was knocking at my door, walked in, skateboard underarm. He sat down. And he said, Chris, which was his friend who played on the high school tennis team with him. Chris told me you could tell me what the song is. Well, honestly, I felt a bit of worldly um, pride. I was thinking, yeah, I see all the young people know me. I know I'm really hip on all the music, but I still didn't know the song. And so I told him, what song do you mean? And then he began to tell the story about he and Chris had just returned from Los Angeles, where a bunch of their friends traveled down to see this up-and-coming Irish band, curiously named after a U.S. spy plane, play in concert. And I had never heard of you two, either the spy plane or the Irish band, 
But in 1985, they were taking their first tour in North America. They played in Los Angeles, and a bunch of our young people and Robert went down to see him. And then they began, right, right at that moment, Robert began to relive that concert. And as a 17-year-old kid, just began to sing that song for me. And as he sang, he sang, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. The words were familiar to me. He brought me out of the pit, out of the mire and clay. And then he said the entire stadium began to sing the song, began to sing the chorus. How long to sing this song? How long, O oh Lord, do we sing this song? And the band walked off the stage and the crowd began to continue to sing. How long, how long to sing this song? And then he said again, do you know what this song is? And I took my Bible and opened it up to our text this morning. Now I'm not saying to you, you should let your kids listen to rock music because it will turn their hearts to Christ. But this kid listened to one song by one band called 40 and sang that song from that day to today. God works in every situation to turn our hearts to him. And this morning, we are going to look at that song that Robert Hewlett discovered, a song of thanksgiving taken from Psalm chapter 40 as David sang it and wrote it down. This is his song of thanksgiving in the middle of trouble. Now, it's important to note that this song did not come from just his thoughts. He didn't just suddenly have an inspiration. Like most songs, like almost every song, there was a reason for this song. It came out of a real situation in a real man's life. And from that situation, he began to write. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Now, that means that while he was waiting, while he was waiting, God inclined, heard his cry. Now, I wonder if you remember the first time you were separated from your parents. I'm not really sure how that happens in Singapore. I don't know if it happens for the first time in primary school or, or maybe now that there's so many kindergartens, maybe the, the first time you were separated from your parents was when you were sent to kindergarten. As you've heard before, my, my mom didn't send me to kindergarten. I was a mama's boy, so I, I stayed really close to her uh, until I started primary school. But before I started primary school, I had one a terrifying experience. An experience that pierced my heart, my little five-year-old heart, with fear. So I found this old picture of the Pacific National Exhibition in Vancouver. Um, originally, the PNE, as everyone calls us, was set up so that farmers in the, and ranchers in the rural parts of British Columbia, once a year in August, could bring all their livestock into the big city to show them off to everybody who may be buyers. Now, now, I have a memory of that just because it smelled. 
But I never went in to see it because I couldn't imagine why anyone would want to see anything that smelled like that. I think I was actually 21 before I saw a real cow. So I, so I never went into that, but attached to the P&E, there, there was a, a great big playland that was literally called Funorama. I, I'm thinking that in the 50s, if it was more than just fun, it had to be Orama. Anything that was bigger than the word had to have Orama. And you can probably just see on the top right, you can just see fun O. That's what my parents brought me to. For some reason, I have no memory of my brother being there. And obviously, it was before my sisters came along. But, but I remember walking with my parents, looking at all the ways a little boy could lose his pocket money. And I stopped just for a moment. And when I turned around, you know when you're five, a crowd looks like this huge forest of legs. They all look the same and none of them looked like my mom or dad. And suddenly I had this fear. I was frozen just for a moment and then I went running, bouncing off every tree trunk. I grabbed a set of pant legs. A man looked down and I remember now him speaking this self-evident truth. You need to find your parents, but I didn't know where my parents were and everyone looked alike. So I'm sure I was crying, but I prefer to not remember that part. And suddenly this Elderly lady, I'm guessing that she was at least 32 or 33, came to me bent over and said, sweetie, why don't you just sit with me and see what happens? And so there we sat, waiting. And then I saw my mother's face. She bent down and she said something that I will never forget. Ian... Mummy was looking for you. Did you notice this? Well, while David was patiently waiting, it was then that God inclined, turned to him. He was a God that was waiting on him to cry out. So while patiently waiting... David's faith became contagious. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and hear. How? From my song. From my message, they will see and hear, and they will put their trust in the Lord. From that moment on, I began to sing a song of courage. That one experience, that awareness. And the first memory I have of my brother Hamish being back in my life, I was home, we shared a bedroom, it was dark, and in the middle of that darkness, I said, Hamish, you know, in the middle of the night, you always say someone's name with a question mark just to see if they're awake. I said, if you ever get lost, mom will come looking for you. At five years of age, I became an evangelist for the good news of my mother who said, Ian, dear, I was looking for you. This is the message we find in Isaiah chapter 65 when God says, I was ready to be sought 
by those who weren't asking for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said to them, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. This song is a salvation song. It's the song of a God who turns toward us, who comes looking for us. It's a joyful salvation song about the God who finds those who are not looking. The man whose pants I clung to could only judge me with self-evident truth. But my mum could find me and embrace me just like this God. I'm guessing that some of you feel a bit like David right now. You would love to have some great experience of his in intervention, but right now you are waiting. As you wait, the truth of God's word is God inclines. That word literally means he turns toward us. And says, here I am. Here I am. And while he was remembering faithfulness, we see in verse 4, this song continued to bubble up. And he spoke this truth as a man who had experienced it. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Not my running, that didn't lend me trust. Not my clinging to every pant trunk, that didn't help me in my trust. Not even the woman who said, let's sit here and wait, see what happens. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to the judgmental, to those who also go astray. Blessed is that man. David remembered faithfulness, and so his trust was strengthened. While he was remembering the faithfulness of God, that memory strengthened his heart for the required moment. His trust was strengthened. He said this, you have multiplied. Your faithfulness, your faithfulness was much, but you multiplied it. Your mercy was great. But you multiplied it. Oh Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, your thoughts toward us. None can compare to you. He had stopped going for rescue anywhere else. Why? Because none compared to the faithfulness of this God. And so I proclaim and tell of them. They are more than can be told. One of the sad things I feel as a pastor as we try and encourage people, share what you know to be true about this God. How has he shown your faithfulness? How many times have I heard a Christian, a believer say, I don't know what to say. David didn't know what to leave out. There were more 
situations in his life than he could possibly recount. God has been that faithful. My life is continually full of deliverance stories. And so, here is David's song of faithfulness. We can find it in our text, verses 6 through 10. God was faithful. This will be the continual refrain. God was faithful. While remembering his faithfulness, he would retell the story, and each time he retold the story, it strengthened his heart. God was faithful first to give grace. Notice in this verse, he says, the sacrifice and offering, meaning the work that I do for you, doesn't delight you. What has delighted this God of deliverance is the grace of giving me an open ear. Even that, friends, the grace to hear his word and to respond to it, he gives out of his mercy. David says, I have been object of his grace. He has been faithful to give me this grace of opening my ears. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. But secondly, God was faithful in his plans for David. Now many people will say that verses 7 and 8 is a messianic passage. And certainly it could be. But for David, it simply indicated that God had a plan for him before David had a plan for God. He had written the story of David in his eternal book of life. He had called David from his mother's womb. He had set him apart for a special assignment. You, oh God, have delighted to do this, to write my name in your book, to place your law deep within my heart. You have given me that. You have been faithful not just to give me the grace of opening my ears, but to give me the grace of planning out my life. And God, in this moment, I know that you are faithful to bring deliverance. And so in verses 9 and 10, he can't help but sing this song over and over and over I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord. That means when we don't sing a song, David would say to us, you are actually keeping it from flowing out. Because it would naturally come out if you've had this experience with God where you have seen him intervene in the middle of your trouble. It naturally flows. If you have joy, it naturally flows. No one ever had to tell me, Ian, I know that Sherry's had a baby boy, but please um, tell somebody. I didn't have to have a seminar to tell my friends, hey, it's a baby boy, he's healthy, his name is Leighton. I never had anyone to tell me to not do it is to restrain, restrain the joy. To restrain evidence of God's goodness and grace to me 
And so I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. You know, everything about our life today encourages us not to do that. If, by the way, you're going to a job interview next week, probably you don't want to sit down and pull out a list of all the great things God has done for you. Because every job we ever attend wants to know what are all the great things you can do for our company. So, so much about my life, so much about my culture encourages me to restrain this song that David could not. It flowed out and we see it in his history. In First Samuel chapter 7, there is this story of a young David outraged that Israel's armies were cowering in caves while a giant named Goliath taunted the Lord their God. And so David went before the king and said, your servant can do it. And he suddenly found himself forced in the place of having to defend why he could such a young boy. And what's fascinating to me is in his defense of his ability, he never once said, hey, I'm really good with stones, especially small, smooth river stones. He never once said, hey, I'm, I got mad skills with a sling. He simply talked about the Lord's ability. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of a lion, who delivered me from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David faced giants, not with blind faith, but with experience, with a God who was faithful to deliver. Now this, to me, all makes sense. Because when God does something amazing in my life, I'm the guy who says, yes, praise God. I was in a mess. But he delivered me. I made my own mess. But he was faithful. Grace flowed in my direction. Not because it was merited. I will do that. But the amazing thing about this song of deliverance is it does not come on a day of victory. And we realize that because the third verse is David's lament. He doesn't sing this song from a throne room saying, here I am because I waited patiently for the Lord and he lifted me up. No, he sang it from the depths of miry clay, from the pit of destruction. From misery, he dared sing this impossible song. He dared continue to sing this song. And he realized that his misery came from two categories. And the first was the furnace that was hot because he lit the fires. The furnace of his own failures. The furnace of his own making. His self-inflicted failures. Verses 11 and 12 said, For you, O Lord, will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast means it continues. It is there. It endures. Will ever what? Save me? It's not the word. But it's based on the herb Hebrew word to save. The word is better translated preserve. 
Preserve means doesn't just save me for this moment. It means continually keeps on save me. That's why a lot of Americans call jam preserves. Because it takes fruit that would rot. It boils them down, draws out the sugar, and in that way it preserves fruit. We call it jam. Sometimes they call it jelly. It lasts a long time. This is the faithfulness of God who doesn't just save once but preserves us telegraphing this eternal life for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My own iniquities have overtaken me. I know some of you who are watching this right now you have real trouble not of your own. But I confess, I am a man just like David. I suffer from many self-inflicted wounds. And there are many in my life who have gathered around me with the comfort of Job's friends and say, I told you if you did that, you would have this problem. But God, even though my wounds are self-inflicted, he shows mercy. You know when you're in crisis, when you're in the furnace, you cannot see. You can't figure your own way out. And so David says, I was in darkness. Evils have encompassed me. I cannot see. My, my own iniquities are more than the hairs on my head. He was shrouded in darkness of his own creation. He couldn't see the way out, but he knew the way maker was going to joyfully intervene. So even in the middle of this pit, he could sing a song of victory. He could sing a song of deliverance. I wonder if that has been your experience. I will be honest with you as I was rereading this passage this week. I suddenly realized that so much of my Christian life has been punctuated not with joy but with disappointment. Disappointment because of the false promises of the Western evangelism that reached me. I don't know if you're aware of what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's the kind of evangelism that sells Jesus like some kind of internet investment scheme. Right? The, the kind of evangelism that told me, Ian, if you just accept this Jesus plan, your, your days will be transformed. You know, you'll be constantly be strengthened. Your life will be more happy and your songs more clappy. Right? Your, your life will just be that way. And so I expected all trouble to miraculously disappear. And every time I came upon trouble then, I was shocked and disappointed and tended to blame the God who turned to me and said, I am here. I tried to solve my own issues and so the truth of God's word reminds us we turn to God because trouble is real. 
And because trouble is real, God stands ready to save. Not just in the furnace of our own failures, but also in the valley of personal attacks. These two categories. I have uh, an exhausting friend because he never learned to sing this song. He sang songs of constant disappointment. He has this tendency to fill every conversation with stories of personal injustice. People who had done him wrong and why he had to leave this job or that job or this workplace. It was never on him. It was always somebody else who didn't like him, didn't appreciate his skill sets. What do you do when that is real? I've left this with blanks because I'd like you to consider something. As God invites us to sing a familiar song, I wonder if God's name is still there. Or is it possible that you have placed some counterfeit help in God's spot? Is it possible that you are singing, be pleased, O sympathetic supervisor, Save me from all these colleagues who constantly torment me. Could it be that we are singing, Oh, be pleased, empathetic Christian counselor. Assure me that I've done nothing wrong. Let me just tell you my problems. Not that I need to change. Oh, CPF, make haste to help me. Oh, trusted friend, make haste to help me. Is it possible that you struggle so because somehow your world, our culture, has taught us to put something else in God's place? Listen to how David cries in the middle of his pit, Be pleased, O Lord, do you understand how personal, intensely personal this is? He's not saying, be pleased, O God. Because in our modern translations, every time that word Lord is in all caps, it references God's personal name. Because as you know, probably the Hebrews considered the name of God so holy, they never named it. So when translators came along, there was just a blank there. A blank that some of us filled up with other counterfeit help. But modern translators have put in his name, not by saying Yahweh, but capitalizing every letter in the word Lord, which meant he was calling his God by name, Yahweh. Be pleased to deliver me, Yahweh. Make haste to help. This was a part of his Song of Lament, recognizing he was in trouble two ways, and yet there was only one way that help would come, and that was from the Lord. And so he had this joyful confidence. Verses 16 through 17. This was sung in the middle of his despair 
but may all who seek you, Yahweh, my personal God, be glad in you, even in dark moments, even in COVID seasons. May all who seek you, Lord, be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is Yahweh. Great is the God of deliverance. As for me, I am now poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. He is even now turning to me. And that's why John Calvin once said, Faith is ultimately a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolent turning toward us. In every dark season, in every illness, we can have faith, a firm and certain knowledge that has been bolstered and informed by a lifetime of God's intervening in our trouble with his grace and mercy. And so, 11 centuries later, the half-brother of Jesus, a man named James, wrote a suffering persecuted church in the middle of their trouble in Jerusalem. And he wrote, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet the trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of this faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. You see, friends, God had huge ambition for David. He has huge ambitions for you and I. More than our ambitions for him, he has big ambitions for us. And it's not simply to survive this current season. Not that we would simply get by or get pulled out or even that we would start telling the story. God's ambition is patient waiting that would have its Full effect. Why? Because his ambition is outrageous. That we would be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So friend, if you are struggling in this moment, remember your God loves you and is now, even now, turning toward you. Not so he can pull you out of trouble so that you, he could be shaping you into something that is perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. There is a hymn that we don't sing a lot at GBC. It first appeared in a Baptist hymnal that was edited by John Rippon in the 18th century. The hymn is How Firm a Foundation. It's a hymn that is full of history because it was quickly adopted by churches all throughout Europe and in North America, sang often. But not only did it have history, it, it had mystery, because the author's name was not listed. The only designation of the author was this mysterious letter, K. Now, if you research it, you might find lots of ideas, but the truth is we don't know. And the fascinating, unique thing about this hymn is it starts off like most hymns do, encouraging God's 
congregation gathered, singing together, coming out from the pit that their week was, singing songs of deliverance, how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And then suddenly this hymn takes an unusual turn. Because in the middle of singing of this hymn, God interrupts at that verse and begins himself to sing over his people, Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and I will still give thee aid. Be strengthened. I will help thee and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, all-powerful hand. And then through the deep waters I call thee to go. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. That deep distress you feel right now is God shaping you for holiness, preparing you for perfection. And when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not. I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. This is the confidence we can have in dark seasons that God has turned our way so let me ask you as we pause for a moment of reflection. Has God given you songs like this? Has he demonstrated his faithfulness to you? And how might the memory of that song be sung in a way that will strengthen you for this present darkness? I want to invite you to bow with me and as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to invite you just in this moment to trace back, to retrieve from your memory banks all those reasons why you are here right now. Has God shown himself faithful? Is there a reason why you can offer prayer of thanksgiving even though things are not easy, even though right now you are in this deep moment? Could the shadow be the shadow of the Almighty who has turned to you in this moment and said, Here I am. Even before you called on me, I was seeking you, calling you, saying, Here I am. I am your God. Oh, Father God, we bless you. Because you are the God who hears. You fill our hearts with courage. You demonstrate your faithfulness. While we weren't making plans for you, 
you had planned to write our names in your book of life. You've planned to come and seek for us to call that you are here. And so God, even in these moments, help your people to look up and see that you are a God who saves. Fill our mouths with songs of deliverance. Let us sing them often. You are the God who saves. Make haste, O God. Deliver us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.